Drumming. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Bobby Jarzombek. Bobby is well known in the heavy rock and progressive metal world as the drummer for Fate's Warning, touring with the Halford Band, featuring the legendary Judas Priest vocalist Rob Halford, backing up vocalist Sebastian Bach, and spending many years with the band Riot, as well as other related projects such as the band Spastic Inc. that he started with his brother Ron. But this South Texas-raised drummer from San Antonio just landed the gig with the king of country music, George Strait. You'll hear from this conversation how Bobby is more than qualified to hold down the drumming chair with this country music legend. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I do here at the podcast, you can become a Patreon member. Find us at patreon.com slash working drummer. Any donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content that's provided by our former guests. This content covers a variety of topics, but it's all educational and applicable to the working professional. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can find links to both of these things on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. And while you're there, you can find out more about this episode and the over 300 episodes that we've done over the years. And no matter what your platform of choice is for listening to podcasts, giving us a like, a rating, and review always helps us grow. So Bobby's one of those drummers that I was personally less familiar with, uh, although many of the groups that he's been working with over the years, uh, I was very familiar with, uh, including Fate's Warning. Uh, Being in Nashville and being a drummer that works in Nashville, when the drumming chair for George Strait was filled by Bobby, it made some news around uh, our community. And uh, so I was like, wow, who is this guy? And then to become more familiar with what he was known for, really piqued my interest and I thought I've got to have this guy as a guest and as you'll find out there there's a lot more to the story than you would expect uh, from this guy who's known in the progressive metal world but uh, from the videos and other things that I've heard he sounds great I have friends that have personally played country gigs with him and says that he swings his ass off and uh, and you can hear it so uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Bobby Jarzombek done anything else uh in my life except play drums uh i've taught drums a little bit but i'm not a great teacher i would say uh i'm not crazy about teaching either it's just not yeah. something yeah. ever appealed to me um as a as a player i never got into that i guess i'd never got a, a system down where i felt like you know, the kids are really learning and it was beneficial to me and it was streamlined and all that kind of stuff. I never got that down. So, um, but 
I bagged groceries when I was 16 years old for about three months. The only job I ever had besides playing drums. And so, um, and playing, you know, like all, I don't want to say all styles because I don't play jazz. You know, I don't play like bebop or anything like that. But I grew up in South Texas, uh, in San Antonio, and I started playing country music when I was a senior in high school and um, with a she was a fiddle player that uh, she uh, had she was my English teacher she asked me to play uh, in her country band and I didn't know much about country music at the time and that's when I started playing on the weekends playing country music and then I also had this sort of heavy metal hard rock stuff that I grew up with with my brothers and we loved the music and we kind of excelled in that area so I was always playing country music on the weekends and and uh, while I was in town and then I would go out and do tours and records and stuff like that and play heavy metal and then it was come back in town and play country music all the time and and then place and I played a little bit of rock gigs you know even in town and but you know like the gig that uh, we I had mentioned to you about playing on the coast tomorrow that's kind of a half and half it's a sort of a half and half country half rock gig okay. and as well as the gig on uh, Labor Day and so um, but in town I might play with bands that are playing strictly traditional country and and do that. And then I might be playing, you know, a band that kind of covers a lot of classic rock and then country and whatever else. But in South Texas, as well as, uh, as you know, in Nashville area, you can play country and play country music all night. And there's nothing wrong with that. And people love it. Yeah. Uh, whereas in some areas of the country, you there's not many places any cl- many clubs I'd, I'd say in that particular town where you can just sit and play traditional country music all night but here you can you know right it's great about you know growing up in uh, san antonio and south texas area so kind of the overall arc of of what inspired me to to reach out to you was this new gig that you've got with the king george Strait. You know, and then uh, buddies of mine that know your know your discography and, and all the things that you've done were talking about you on Facebook. And I was like, wait a minute, I've got to talk to him. Um, I didn't grow up on country music, but I've been living in Nashville for 20 years, and I spend a lot of my time playing country. And I, I really enjoy it. I enjoy traditional country, the swing aspect of it, um, some of the newer country, the rock aspect of it. I feel like it feeds a lot of of the musical uh, drumming that it's re- is required of it. It challenges me. Um, but, uh, you know, just... I, I've known of Fate's Warning for a long time. I'm a, a, a band member, a bandmate of mine in the early 90s was way in, way into the band. And uh, I've spent this week listening to a lot of Fate's Warning... Um, and it's, it's just been so fun, uh, just to kind of like, okay, this is the guy that's playing with George Strait. If you were to tell me if this was the headline, uh, drummer from Texas raised in South Texas and San Antonio gets George Strait gig, I would have been like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But then to see all the things that you've done and then, and then this as well, or what, what most of us know of, I'm like, there's more to the story. 
Yeah. I do want to cover the George Strait thing for sure, but I do want to talk about what what was going on in 1986. You're about 23 years old. The first uh, kind of recording thing that you did with Juggernaut, um, and because th- there was some there's some intense playing on this at 23, and some very mature execution of this playing that you were doing. What were you, th- you know, how how did that go come about? What, um, you know, where were you at in your place and time? I was 20, I think I was 22 when I did that Juggernaut record and the first one in 86. And, you know, my brother and, and me, I have two brothers at play, but particularly my younger brother, you know, we were really into bands that were, I mean, I grew up with the 70s sort of rock, Doobie Brothers and, you know, and all that. And I started to get into, you know, Kiss and Rush and Aerosmith and all these other bands. But the technical bands really sort of inspired me and my brother. And that was Yes. um, Yeah. Rush, UK with Terry Bozio uh, and and Bill Bruford and, and all that sort of stuff. That was kind of. We were really drawn to that and and the analytical approach to drumming and to music or whatever. And we kind of really pursued that and tried to study it, even though I'm not, I'm pretty much self-taught. I bought drum books and um, and I learned to read, you know, fifth grade uh, playing in the school band and took a few snare drum lessons. But I started buying books like just, you know, uh, uh, David Gal- Garibaldi's book, uh, the linear, uh, the, what's it called? Uh, Is it Future Sounds? Future Sounds, yeah. Mm-hmm. I bought that, and I bought uh, I bought a lot of a lot of books with linear patterns and just a lot of stuff. It just became sort of, I guess, a student of the drums or whatever. And um, I, at that time, I you know, like things, I started to figure out stuff playing with a click track. And 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 really kind of honing in on that. And I had these concepts that I would practice. And, right. and it was, you know, this sort of thing that I would do, like it would be a permutation of a paradiddle and then try to spread that around the kit. I just kind of had my own ideas, I guess. And that's kind of where it evolved from just being analytical about it and then studying music, too, and being a fan of music, whether it was something that was uh, pop you know, or whether it was something that was technically great. But, um, you know, at that time, I mean, it's, it, that's, a, that's a great question that you're asking, but it's so hard to answer without being in my head, you know, that many years ago and, and really figuring out, you know, why or, or because I listen to some of that stuff and I think about it too. I remember even being in the studio on that juggernaut record. And, and I remember using a click track on almost all of it. And this was 86. Nobody was using the clicks in that time. And I remember I had one of those cheap little things. Like I had a cheap metronome that would go from 100. Then the next number was 108. And then it was one, you know, like yes. another little metronome thing. And I would find the, the number in between one of, you know, like where I kind of like we ran this a little click track and out to a, you know, quarter inch cable. I mean, it was just it was crazy that it was that sort of, a, you know, most guys, I guess, at that point were just going in the studio and just banging it out or whatever. But I guess we just sort of had that approach to music early on and studying guys like Neil Peart, Terry Bozio, 
a Simon Phillips. Those were my favorite drummers growing up. And so, uh, and I mean, other than that, I, it's hard to really explain um, why else I was kind of at that point. But I, I listen, like I, every once in a while, I listen to the one of those records and I like, and I'll think, yeah, that was pretty damn good for that time. <laughs> and especially even when I listen to stuff like riot, uh, like in 1990, we did the record, uh, uh, the privilege of power. And that's, that's pretty crazy drumming. It was so like, I was just reaching out for, you know, as far as I could go, you know, on that record. So really cool stuff. At what point did you did you start exploring the open-handed technique during this time? That was a Simon Phillips thing, half half kind of really being a fan of Simon Phillips and seeing, you know, at that point there wasn't a lot of video, but I knew I'd see pictures of him and stuff like that, and I would be always wanting to do it and explore that. And um, I, I was working on a song on that record that I mentioned, The Privilege of Power by Riot, and uh, there was a song called Storm in the Gates. And there was a pattern that I was playing. And I wanted to do this Tom thing around during the verse while I'm keeping time. And I said, and I learned the part open handed. And I thought, well, I'll just, I'll do it that way, open handed. And I, at that point, I was playing a lot of cover gigs uh, around town. And, and I just told myself when I started, this is 1990. I said, I'm going to go ahead and start training myself and teaching myself to play open-handed. And I do a a few things left-handed. I throw a frisbee left-handed. I bounce basketball left-handed. I chop wood Mm left-handed. But everything else, like writing and everything else, is uh, right-handed. So I am predominantly right-handed. But I just told myself I'm going to practice that way, playing everything left-handed. And I started open-handed. I moved. I had a ride to the left and a ride to the right in case, for some reason, if I played a local gig or, or whatever, I would play. If something felt too weird, I would be able to to go to the right symbol yeah. for the ride. And I just kept doing that. And then at that point, I was playing with Riot. We were doing live shows. So I taught myself the whole riot set left-handed and I just kept doing it. And it took me a lot of years actually to um, completely switch over. I mean, it took me 15, 20 years maybe, you know, to completely where I feel 100% comfortable that way. But it was kind of some, some things felt better right away that way, you know, or within a year or two. And then some things took a lot longer, but did it out of sort of a, a wanting to have that freedom with my right hand around the kid. And the Simon Phillips, you know, that had something to do with it also. So it was a little bit of both. It's 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 just amazing to just to to watch videos of you play this stuff and then to hear it. It's like, okay, I, th- I can hear where he's incorporating this element to his playing, keeping the left hand going while he's moving around the kid. Yeah, and if I... If I'm if I'm thinking about like particularly with Fate's Warning, there's things where, um, especially the way Jim Mathias, the guitar player for Fate's Warning, he'll program a drum part or whatever, and he'll have just rough ideas. Like when he sends me a song, he'll 
have the snare and the kick and a hi-hat, but it'll have like these toms kind of popping out in all these random places. And it won't make any sense like to a drummer. Like it's kind of real odd. Like he's almost got his finger and he's kind of doing this. <laughs> when he programmed. But I know what he's thinking. He's thinking, you know, something that's a kind of a, you know, like a, a beat, whether it's even 4-4 four, four or 7-8 or whatever time signature Fate's Warning will happen to be playing in. But he'll have that kind of thing. And I say, okay, that's what he's hearing. He's hearing something with the toms kind of coming out and adding a little color to the part. And so I naturally, it's easy to go there. But sometimes I'll think about it and I'll think, man, that would have been impossible to play if I was playing, you know, traditional with the crossover thing. So. There's just some of the parts. They're they're so through composed. I mean, like there's just. I mean, how do you prepare to track with some of these bands, whether it's with Riot or Fate's Warning? Uh, is, is there like a standard method that you've always used to get ready to record? Because there's just seems like there's so much going on, and adopting some of your philosophy by based on your inspiration of Neil growing up you know you're 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 creating parts that work well in verse one compared to verse two and you know building upon the same concepts that neil used uh but they're very dense and like how do you remember what to do well you obviously know neil's drumming by the way he asked that question (laughs) (laughs) i do yeah and um the way Fate's Warning works, and I wish I knew how Rush worked because I don't know their their method of really doing things. Uh, and I'm sure it's evolved a little bit, but since those guys started at the beginning, maybe it hasn't. But most of the bands, I think just because of, you know, technology and the way things are and, and everybody living in different places, there hasn't been a lot of the, yeah, they're in a room kind of stuff. And that hasn't happened in years, really, where, you know, you have a guitar player and a drummer hashing it out in the same room. Um, Most of this stuff is just file trading, you know, of the Jim. Jim will send me or if it's my brother and it's something that my brother and me had worked out or or maybe maybe some of the older riot stuff. But um, most of that is he'll send me a Pro Tools uh, session and it'll have guitar, bass, vocals, if the vocals have been done yet. And then uh, and then it'll be a drum programming and a click and whatever else, you know, might be on it. So I'll get the stem files and I'll kind of put them into a session and I'll just start and I'll, I'll listen to what he has programming programmed on the drums of what his ideas are. Sometimes I won't. Sometimes I'll. I'll take the verse, for instance, and I'll just start playing something. I'll hear the riff and whatever time signature it's in, and I'll come up with something, and I'll I'll do like a little rough, you know, and I'll record myself, and then I'll do maybe a couple of ideas, and then I'll then I'll go to the programming and I'll say, how far am I thinking different than what he was originally thinking? I mean, it's not it's not a hurry up process. It's it's a very tedious time-consuming thing but i like that with within that music i like working that way i like i mean creating you know the parts you know it makes me feel like like that i'm being really creative like somebody would like neil would feel or you know scott rock and feel with uh queens or whoever it might be and and those the, the parts really make you know the song 
especially in the progressive stuff. And um, so, uh, but sometimes I'll listen to what Jim has programmed and I'll go through each and I'll listen and I, and then I'll say, Oh, I'm way off from what he's thinking. And then I'll say, say, well, what is he thinking? Is it hi hat? Is it, but is it linear? Is it a lot of bottom end like toms and double bass or is it sparse, you know? And I'll just use those as a guideline. If it's, if the part is real sparse, I'm not, and really kind of, you know, upper top of the kit, then I'm not going to give him something that is really bottom heavy. I'm going to try and stay within the same realm of what he's, you know, gave me to work with. And that's, and what I'll do is I'll, sometimes I'll, I'll, if the song has eight sections or whatever, I maybe I'll, depending on if I feel like I'm in the right, you know, if I'm in the ballpark or whatever, sometimes I'll send him just sections. Sometimes I'll record the whole song and then I'll send it to him and I'll say, what do you think? And then he'll, you know, send me, and I'll just send him like a two track, whatever. And he'll say, you know, the verses are great, but, you know, then I'll say even something real, real small. Like, I don't, you know, the fill going into the chorus is a little weird, you know, like, and it, it might be that specific. And then and it might be like the whole chorus doesn't move as much as I f- feel like it should be moving or, you know, like whatever we do. Or like he'll even say stuff like, on that measure of five, I'm hearing the snare on the end of two and five on the first measure and on the three and the end of four on the second measure, you know, and it'll, it will get real specific like that. And so we'll go through the whole song and I'll have to make usually a couple of changes on different parts here or there. And once I finalize the song and it's all done or whatever, sometimes I'll track it for real right then or sometimes I'll just kind of put put it away in my files and I'll say this is it right here and then I'll start working on the next one and then whatever else and I might then I might track them one by one or I might track three of them you know at a time it just depends like at that time and you're recording at home a home studio yeah and I've been doing that for the last couple of Fates Warning records I did that for the last Riot record I did and for several other things that I've done What's your what's your just overall general like interface? Is there anything specific that you like? I mean, I have uh, I have that uh, the GTQ two for it's like a Neve sort of mock uh, thing. It's um, for kick and snare. I use a uh, Apogee Rosetta for the converters, and uh, I have uh, some Mackie stuff. I have a Pacifica that I use for overheads for preamp and uh it's kind of a little bit of different stuff and uh i'm doing 16 tracks wow i do i do kick in and out uh and i sometimes do a sub kick i do snare top and bottom sometimes a side snare then one two three four three overheads uh ride in hi-hat and then a room mic so it's 16 did you figure all this stuff out on your own, or did you have people help you? I've had some friends of mine come over that are engineers around town and look at it and suggest things here and there. But most of it, it's just over the last few years. I mean, it's just like drumming. It's kind of like 
you know, I, I wonder what this mic pre would sound like on the kick and snare rather than on the overheads. And then I'll tweak it a little bit and switch things around, maybe buy something new. And then, you know, just, I mean, I haven't been tracking a lot of years at home. I'd say maybe about eight, eight years, 10 years, maybe something like that. I think that's as far as home studios are concerned. That's you're, that's pretty ahead of the curve there. You know, uh, technology is allowing uh, you know a lot of us to get deeper into it. And with the shutdowns last year, we're we're more invested in that. But some friends of mine that have gotten gotten into it now, drummer friends, they're like, "Man, I should have got into this long time ago." <laughs> because uh, I mean, I like doing it. You know okay it's it is tedious though i mean if you're doing it yourself because not only are you playing the parts but you're having to watch your levels you have, then you make sure your drums are all tuned up and whatever then you're having to watch you know if the microphones are moving and stuff and usually that's not my job at all you know so it, it is and then the editing editing takes time and you know all that it's it gets crazy and i'm you know like it's it's a long it's a long process doing that. It, it's it's amazing as we as this has been a normal part of our conversation over the last couple of years. As far as home studio, we are talking about like the other aspects of the responsibilities you have. You have to be engineer and editor and and all these things. Um, so it gives you some freedom, uh, you know. But the trade off is it does take more time to to produce one song. Yeah. I, and for a band like Fate's Warning, for instance, the first record I did with them was in 2012 or 13, and I did that. I did the Arch Matthias record with uh, Jim Matthias and John Arch, which was kind of like, kind of Fate's Warning, uh, basically the same type of music. But I did those up in uh, the Carriage House in um, I forget the name of the city in Connecticut or something. I did those up there, and that in a way is harder for me because I have to learn, you know, 50 minutes worth of music or 60 minutes worth of music. And it's got to be all in my brain and it's got to be there, you know, and I got and I'm reading it while I'm playing, you know, and that sort of thing. And I'm kind of half know it well. And some of it I don't. And, and it's so much better when I do it at home where I'm able to really concentrate on one song at a time and get a great performance rather than having all this music in my brain and then traveling somewhere and then putting a kit together and then having to track it in three days or whatever it might be. I was going to ask you, uh, just with your, as you learned to write when you were younger, like, uh, I I know I've seen, uh, there was a DW playlist that you did uh, maybe a year ago or so, and uh, you were talking about, uh, gosh, what record was it where you charted every song out, a big, an inspirational record of yours? Maybe Dean Castronovo, yeah. Wild Dogs, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I... When I do charts, I write out every single note of even the charts that I do for Fate's Warning. I mean, it's not improvisational music. There will be a couple of sections maybe, especially on the last record, where I I did kind of a little bit of a different type of thing than what I'm used to, where it was a little bit uh, improvisational. But most of that stuff is all worked out note for note and it's just a matter of getting a great performance but i do the charts like that where i'll write out every single 
uh, hit. I'm the I'm the same way, and it's so funny because I, I had an opportunity to interview Don Perry, and uh, I said when when I write charts, I'm like the Ron Burgundy of chart reading. Like even if it doesn't fit the gig that day, I will still play what's on the page. <laughs> uh, one of the things you had uh, talked about uh, is inverted uh, uh, double strokes. Oh, yeah, double strokes, yeah. And uh, is there an example in your recording, in your discography, of a song that really applies this? You know, for the for those of you, you know, maybe don't know don't don't know what I'm referring to. Just an inverted open roll, as opposed to right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left. It'd be right, left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right. So you're talking about, and there's just something that about that. I use that a lot when I was playing more jazz and Latin, but you're talking about in a progressive rock scenario there's a song on on one of the fates warning and i do a quick thing between the hi-hat and the ride and it's and it's uh, inverted uh, well actually the song uh from the rooftops has a little thing that i'm doing from the and there's a live video of that um where i'm playing somewhere and it's a little pattern Uh, something I don't I don't remember, but the patterns going uh, between the uh, the symbol, the piggyback, and then the hi hat. I mean, there's a lot of places where I do it really quick, so it's hard for me to say. I think I learned to do those, and I learned the the uh, the benefit of those when I was actually playing Tejano music for a little while. I don't know if you know what Tejano music is. I do not. It's like the polkas, like the Mexican sort of music. There's a, there's a, the, the polkas or whatever, and then there's the cumbias and whatever. But a lot of the, the Tejano music, the Mexican sort of polkas, is uh, there's a lot of press rolls or well, not so much press rolls, but a lot of you know quick rolls that I was never sure if the drummer was doing them, like starting it and doing straight doubles. But I always kind of felt like it would may have more impact if you had that first stroke. If you had that first stroke and then you played the doubles around it. So I always thought that the, it just made more sense to do it, to do it uh, with that first stroke with your right and then going left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right. And, and having those sort of accents. And there's a lot of, I think that's a, and then the inverted, I'm just, I'm going off on a tangent here where I don't know where I'm going. But uh, to me, the the inverted par- uh, paradiddle, which is, uh, which is the right, left, left, right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left, right, left, that's a more useful um, rudiment than the paradiddle, just because you can kind of, you can make it into a roll, or you could... You can go to the roll whenever you want to go to the roll, or you can go to a, like a, a paradiddle, you know. And it's, I mean, like a, a you can you can accent strokes is what I'm saying. I love that rudiment. I think it's a great tool. You can go off symbols with it. 
anyway. You know, the, the little bit of teaching that I've done, as soon as the student knows the paradiddle, I teach them the inverted paradiddle because even just between the hat and the snare, you can make a really great groove. And it just instills this, you know, ghosting idea and these other ideas that get the left hand involved more than just two and four, especially when they're starting out. Yeah, I'd have to look up. I'd have to listen to something out, of, I guess, my discography and see where. I can find something where I'm actually doing it for sort of a long period of time, uh, where where the where you're hearing definitely those inverted doubles, and then you know or whatever. But it's a quick kind of sort of thing. God, I use it so much, you know. But uh, so the st- style Tejano, is that what you said? Mm-hmm. So this is interesting. So in in Nashville, I mean, some of our restaurants have full Mexican bands playing and, you know, guys are playing accordion and there's a singer and the bass players. play. And I am so fascinated. I mean, I studied Latin music, jazz, all world music, Brazilian, Afro-Cuban, African drumming, and then, of course, all the Western styles. But there's something that eludes me about this style because the drummer is playing fills where I'm like, where are they? And and it's not just one drummer. It's many drummers. And I'm like, there is a style that's happening here that I just can't wrap my head around. It's very strange, yeah. And it's different if you see a band do, do that sort of music live than if you hear it on records. Because when you hear it on records, a lot of times it's very sort of, it's almost a little bit like country in the way where it's a little more stripped down in the, on the records than when you see a band do it live. And the drummers, there's definitely a different language uh, that the drummers are playing. That, um, And one thing is I think you need to learn the language, of the literally the language, to really know what's going on in the lyrics and, and that sort of thing to be able to play the music properly. But I played it for a little while and really tried to study it, and it's, it's bizarre. But even something like a polka, you know... Let's see if I can get a bass from sound here. Ow. Like if you do that from the two to the four. Those inverted doubles, they lend themselves to that so much better because you have the two and the four loud. If you did those as regular rolls, right, right, left, left, right, you're not going to get that accent. And that's where I sort of kind of stumbled on that. Okay. Starting from the Tejano thing. No, interesting. So, I mean, uh, there's times I, I think I use that a lot too, and that kind of comes from the like the six-stroke Motown fills that, you know, I learned when I was younger. And, and, and I just, I love that, just that solid accent that begins those fill, those rolls, uh, even just on the snare drum alone. I, I, I'm digging what you're saying. And then it gives you a chance to accent around the kit too. Yeah, I had, I had a conversation with a drum uh, a buddy of mine about the six-stroke roll. Like he didn't really know what was going on with that. And I'm like, that's the classic, you know, you know, you know, you won't leave me. I mean, that's like it was it's used like from the beginning of time, you know. Yeah. Or fifties, you know. Totally, totally. It's it's so amazing. 
So tell me about the George Strait gig. Um, uh, it's it's fascinating to find out just that you have experience with country music, you know, from a very from a very early age. But how did the gig? I, I, I mean, we know that uh, you know Mike Kennedy, his longtime drummer, passed away in 2018, I believe, in Nashville uh, through a car accident. Uh, Lonnie Wilson uh, picked up the drum duties there for a while. But how did the gig come about for you? Well, uh, I'm glad I already started the country conversation a little bit. Um, so what happened was, you know, um, being that I started playing country music when I was 17 years old, I sort of, uh, I still kind of like I was playing it every week, you know, when I was at home and doing, doing that and playing sessions and uh, just, you know, through the years, playing with different players around town, South Texas, San Antonio area. And the George Strait members, you know, they're, most of them are from this area. Um, Ronnie Huckabee and Mike Daly and all the guys. And they had been, they grew up playing the same clubs that I was playing, although they were a little older than me. And, uh, and so I did play a few gigs here and there with them or a random session or whatever. And it was always kind of a cool thing, you know, like, Hey, I did a session with, you know, Mike Daly or whoever it was, you know, in the band. And it was kind of a big thing or even somebody like Johnny Gimble, you know, like, I mean, all those guys were around here, you know, like the old school country guys. And, um, so, but in, I think things really kind of turned for me. It was in, in 2013, and um, I was starting to play with a guy, a local country guy named Freddie Cruz, and he had his band. And Freddie, he had a little money, and he was able to hire the band members he wanted to for these gigs. And it's little bar gigs, you know, or, or maybe some dance halls, but whatever. But uh, he hired Ronnie Huckabee, George's um, musical director and piano player since... Um, since 1983 or something, he had been with George. And so Ronnie was on the gig playing piano. And so I got the gig playing drums. I filled in one night and they liked my playing. And I knew Huck a little bit. And Mike Daly, the steel player, was playing with this, George's steel player at the time for a short while. And then they he moved on to something else or whatever. But um, we did a lot of gigs uh, within the next three, four years of me playing with that band. And we had a regular Thursday night every week. We had weekend gigs when Ronnie wasn't out, when Huck wasn't out playing with George Strait, or I wasn't out playing with Fate's Warning or Sebastian Bach or whoever I was working with. And, and so they, we would hire, they would hire subs. And, um, but, I think we just got a really good working relationship as far as like, you know, learning new songs, you know, me, um, you know, making sure I knew the tempos of the songs, the count offs, the endings, everything, you know, played with conviction, learned the parts, didn't show up late, whatever, you know, it just everything. We just had a great, you know, uh, relationship and he had, I guess he gained some trust in me or whatever. And uh, at this time, I mean, I've been doing sessions around town and all that. So we did that gig for a while. And then I kind of moved on a little bit because I got a little bit too busy. And George 
um, obviously Mike Kennedy that you mentioned. Mike was playing with uh, with George, and he had been George's drummer since '92, I believe, uh, 27 years. And then he was tragically involved in the uh, automobile accident. And you know, Mike was from San Antonio. Here, I used to go watch him play. He's a, he was a few years older than me, but I would see him play around town uh, when I was in, still in high school and just get out of high school, and I would go see him. And uh, it blew me away every time I would see him play. He was so great. And then he got the gig with Ricky Skaggs, which that's why he moved to Nashville. And he had that gig for five years. But then he, you know, he, then he had his family in Nashville. He got married and all that. So San Antonio was kind of like no longer his home. But he would come back to San Antonio and we would see him. And he'd play around town around Christmas time or the holidays. And then he'd go back to Nashville. But... So in 2018, when Mike died, uh, at that time, there's, there was also a band, I'm kind of skipping around here, there's also a band that involves four members, sometimes five members of George Strait's band, and it's called the Texas Jam Band. And it's Huck, Mike Daly playing steel, Rick McRae, the electric guitar player, Benny MacArthur, who plays electric and plays fiddle and fronts the band. And uh, so there's and then there's also Joel Manuel, the acoustic player from George's band. So there's four or five different members of George's band that play in this side group that play around South Texas. And, And we do corporate stuff and, you know, clubs and all that. Mike was doing that gig also for a little while. So when Mike died, they asked me if I would join the Texas Jam Band and play with them and do all those gigs. So, and I knew the same thing. I knew some of the players around town and all that. But now I'm playing with the basic core of George's band, minus the bass player and the fiddle player and a couple of other guys. But it's, you know, George has got a nine-piece band plus George and two backup singers. So I'm playing with five different, five members of his band in this, in Texas Jam Band. And I did that for about a year and a half. And that's when Lonnie came in and filled in. And George, um, uh, by recommendation, obviously, and Lonnie had played on some of the records, George's records and everybody's record, of course. (laughs) It's a great drummer. And uh, and so Lonnie had, was playing with George. But then after the COVID thing uh, and George was going to get back and out there and playing, I don't know what what the deal was exactly. But uh, for whatever reason, George decided that he wanted to move in a little bit different direction. And uh, and either he asked Huck, you know, if he and the guys, if they recommend somebody or if. Or if it was like, who is that? Who's the drummer playing with you? The jam band? I don't. I have no idea. But at that point, that's when I got the call for uh, from George, and so I'm playing with George Strait. You know, just like that. <laughs> that's awesome. So it wasn't an audition. It, it was just classic recommendation based on your history. Yeah, and I think I mean. It's been a long time, I guess, since there's been sort of an audition sort of process. I mean, you know, I mean, these days in in the music business, everybody knows everybody, it seems. And most guys are 
it comes through recommendation and that's that sort of thing. And I think what happened with me with, with the band was they recommended me. And so I did a private gig with, uh, with George and the guys on May 15th in Austin, we did a private show for 75 people. This is with, with George. And it was, it was a, backyard party for a billionaire you know is this backyard party and they had us play and so but i did three rehearsals with george and the rehearsals i mean i could tell they went really well and he was really happy about it and it was kind of one of those welcome to the band thing and and the gig went over great and uh, i texted him the next day and i said uh you know, I had a great time, blah, blah, blah. And he said, yep, see you in Vegas, you know, whatever. And, you know, it's just kind of like that. He said, how did you get my number? Don't ever text me again. <laughs> no direct eye contact. <laughs> no, he's not one of those artists. No, he's not one of those artists at all. I love that. Yeah, at all, at all. He's, such, he's so cool. And so... uh yeah, I'm really like I'm really fortunate because I've played with some great artists. I mean, you know, I'm playing with Rob Halford, you know, with Judas Priest. That was a big one for me when I got that gig. Twelve years. I started with Rob in '99, and I did that gig until like 2003. Then he went back with Judas Priest, and then we we got back together for a couple of times and did a record. And then in 2010, we went out and did Ozfest, and we did another record at that point. So it was kind of off and on, but it was between '99 and 2010 is is when that sort of. But he was back in Priest, and we didn't see him for a few years, kind of in between that. But it was real busy from for those first three or four years. And and that was big for me because I, I grew up as a Judas Priest fan as well as a George Strait fan. I mean, I was playing, you know, like Full Hearted Memory, you know, when that came out, like the bands that I was playing with, you know, we were doing all those songs. I mean, I played those songs forever, you know. Uh, but it and it's, it's you know, it's a little, it's a little different too now, you know, just uh, um, one thing about, Mike was George's drummer for such a long time, and they really grew accustomed to his style of playing. So I studied a lot of Mike Kennedy live videos, that sort of thing, just to make sure that I had his style and, you know, whatever he might be doing to try to cover that. And uh, that was really important to them, I think. How much material did you have to learn for those gigs and maybe the one in Vegas and were you using charts or using a click live? I'm using I'm, I'm using charts uh, on just about everything, even some of the songs that I've been playing for years and years. Just because there's a couple of little things maybe that I don't want to miss that I've changed from the original uh, arrangement, or they've changed from the original arrangement. Because you know some of these songs were recorded in the '80s, '90s, a lot of them. And they've, they've evolved, you know, live. So I, I have charts there for just about everything. But the first show I did with him in Austin, that was 30 songs. And then the Vegas uh, shows are about 30 songs also. You know, and the, his show was about an hour and 45, hour 50 minutes. So it's, you know, it's about that many tunes. 
and like I said, a lot of them I've known the arrangements of the songs and 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 you know the the basics of the all the songs, but there's just those little quirks and it, it's a lot of I mean for me I mean it's you know a lot of people will say yeah it's a country gig you know you're playing a shuffle you're playing this and that but there's a lot more that goes behind it and making sure that it's right you know that it feels right for the band and for George so yeah. and I think I really do I, I think I really do you know well in those sort of areas if making the band feel comfortable with the tunes is there is there something you could describe to somebody that say well what's the big deal like how are you treating this like all my exes like it's just a shuffle you know like but is there something about the way you play that song with George that okay if you were to if if a drummer was going to come in and 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 sit in on that song hey make sure that you know it's you're playing you know more of a Nashville type shuffle maybe a hi-hat you know more of a just a country straight up shuffle not a not a texas shuffle or not something from you know less blue and you know how would you describe some of those changes i would just say you know like sometimes if a song i mean when you when you come into a song if it's an audience crowd if it's a live if it's sort of a, a if you know the crowd is going to be roaring or whatever when you start a song or whatever, it's just got to be a little bit uh, more authoritative. It's got to be if the record is is you know a side stick or whatever, you got to play snare. You know, and you got to play you know ride cymbal maybe. Open it up a little bit. Just make it a little bit bigger or something. And then when you come down, then it's got to be you know then when the vocal comes in, then it's got to be a little bit you know a little more like the record or whatever. But there's there's a lot of little things that I noticed that everybody and it might be something as simple as, you know, like like the band, like on the on the two and the four count, like going into this, the leads, you know, the solo or something. If the band and I see George, like every time he comes into that, if I'm watching and studying something he's doing, if he comes into the two and four and he's kind of doing a hard strum on the two and four. I say, okay, yeah, they're doing that because Mike did a cymbal crash on the two and four. You know, like just it's subtleties and then there's big things. And 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 watching all those, watching a lot of YouTube and listening to a lot of board tapes, I learned all that. And, and, and I think that that's an important thing. If you get a gig with a band, I think, you know, it's more important to study – um, the way the band's been playing the song for the last five years live, that's way more important than studying the record that was done in 1980. It's, it's because that's the way the band is playing it live. And, and it, it, that was kind of a little bit difficult for me because as I, you know, songs like All My Exes, I've been playing that since, what did it come out, 86, 85, somewhere around there. So, I've been playing that song for that many years, but I had to do something different. I had to change a little bit of the way I approached the song. So it's it's more just, I think it's studying and then kind of watching, you know. And tempos are like that too, you know. Sometimes you'll you'll see it, you'll hear a record and you'll say, okay, that's the tempo of the song, but then you see the band live and they're playing it a lot more up. You got to know that, you know. You got to go into you got to go into the rehearsal or you got to, you know, whatever. You got to know the tempos of where the band feels comfortable with the song. So, so a lot of, it, there was a lot of studying in it. 
you know, and there still is all the time. Well, it, and you bring up so many great points as far as when, you, when you're working with somebody, especially when you're coming in fresh to an established organization to kind of be respectful of the process. You know, a lot of us are students and like, no, 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 this is the tempo and this, but just not be thick headed about being able to, to adapt to the change and, and be just very have a lot of grace about making changes yourself because that speaks volumes of who they're going to be traveling with, who they're going to be hanging out with and and all these things that 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 you bring to the table and know that when you see George make that motion you're you're catching that. You've got your charts there, which I do as well, but man when you just when you know how to keep your head out of the chart and and are aware of your surroundings, that is a skill set that is just invaluable. Yeah, and I mean, and I think, you know, the thing that's different is George Gig in that way, growing up and playing country music, whatever it might be, I think learning what I need to look for in that type of music and then knowing what I need to look for and be aware of with in progressive rock with Fate's Warning, it's they're two very separate things. And you can't really like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, be... 50 years old and say, Hey, you know, like country music sounds kind of simple. I think I can do it. You know, it's like, it's weird. You have to grow up with the music. You have to, it's the same as being, you know, playing Latin music or whatever. I mean, you have to, you have the roots and the music you really do to, uh, really know what to, you know, what you're looking for, what you're listening for. The case with country music with me, I know exactly the style. I know, you know, all the tunes, I know the different, you know, whatever. I mean, I know everything about the music. It's really interesting just in, in, in kind of preparing our, our, our time together and, 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 and studying up on you. Uh, I had a friend of mine from college, you know, who moved to New York 20 years ago and became a great jazz pianist. I moved to Nashville 20 years ago and started playing pop, but about a lot of country. And this has been my world. So he's like, hey, I've got this gig, a run of gigs. Can you come play with me? It's a piano trio with a Grammy-winning jazz singer. And he's like, yeah, all this stuff we used to do in college. And I'm listening to the set list. And I'm going, I maybe can play this, but not at the level you're at now, 20 years of immersive jazz in New York, if you want to play some train beats or texture shuffle, yeah, we can do that. But like this is as much as I love that, as much as it's been important to my development as a musician, as a drummer, it's not my world. It hasn't been my world for 20 years. But to take the style of country music seriously uh, has been great for me. I mean, it's been, I've really enjoyed it. And there are swing elements. There are other just deep pocket elements of it that cannot be overlooked. Yeah. I mean, I still work on my shuffle, you know, like if I'm, if I'm, you know, in my, you know, my rehearsal room or whatever, I still work on it every day just to make sure, you know, just to try to refine it a little little bit or a double shuffle or whatever, working at really slow tempos, whatever it might be. But I still do that. And, uh, and it's, yeah, it's a lifetime sort of thing of playing the music too. Real quick. What's the, what's the rest of your year look like? Well, I, um, I have some gigs, uh, next week I'll be with the, 
Texas Jam Band. That's what the four members of, of were doing uh, Columbus County Fair out towards Houston. We're going to be there. And then we have something else happening later in the month. Uh, then in October, I have uh, ACL with George. So uh, that's Austin uh, Festival outdoor out in the park, you know, thousands and thousands of people. I have that on the 1st and the 8th of October. And then I have some more stuff with George playing Atlanta and uh, Minnesota, a couple of other gigs, back to Vegas. I have eight shows with George, uh, Texas Jam Band. Um, Sebastian has a tour coming up that I'm not able to do. But I might end up doing like a couple of one-offs with him if I can. But the way my whole schedule right now is, is I'm doing George is, you know, of course, priority. And then everything else, if I can do it around that, I'll do it, you know. But I got a lot of local gigs. I have fun doing those. And uh, <laughs> and I'm working on my garden and I'm working on my house. And that's about it. Nice. And your favorite whiskey. What's your favorite whiskey? Uh, Jim Beam or Jack Daniels? I don't know. Jack <laughs> Daniels, if you please. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the for our listeners, you know, we're we're doing a FaceTime video. You've got a nice collection there. Are you hip to Old Forester? No. Where's that made out of? I'm. I think it's Tennessee. It might be Kentucky. Of course, I know those are the two obvious, but uh, it's a very affordable. Uh, it's a good alternative to, to Jack. Uh, it's one of my favorites. I'll check it out. See if they have it at the local liquor store. Oh man, I, it, I, I appreciate you taking a little bit of time out of your schedule. Congratulations on the, on the new gig. Um, the, the videos I've seen of you so far, man, it sounds great. I, I really love playing George Strait songs. So, I mean, I dig where you're coming from. I grew up listening to progressive rock music. Rush, yes, ELP. Uh, you know, there was a time listening to Fate's Warning, and like I said, all the last week and a half, I've been listening to a lot of Fate's Warning, the 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 records you've been on, and just totally loving it. So it's funny listening to Fate's Warning during the day, and then going and playing George Strait songs at night. Um, I'm kind of just following in your footsteps for just a, like a week. <laughs> It's cool. If you have a chance, check out Spastic Inc. Yes, the one with your brother. Yeah, yeah. That's some pretty crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I listened to that as well. And um, a Riot. Oh my gosh, there's some crazy shit with Riot. Yeah, yeah. That was a big part of my career, too. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, man, this has been has been a lot of fun uh, to to meet you and and to get caught up with with what's happening. And um, man, thanks thanks so much, Bobby. I appreciate your time. Yeah, this was fun. Good questions and uh, had me to thinking about it a little bit, <laughs> but not too much. I'll have to think about that double. I mean, that inverted doubles. What song? Anyway, I'll get back to you on that. All right. Thanks a lot, Matt. Hey, thanks, man. Have a great uh, great night and great rest of your weekend. You too. All right. See you, man. So there you have it, my conversation with Bobby Jarzombek. 
Uh, congratulations on his new gig with George Strait. Uh, we want to thank Bobby so much for taking a little time to talk to us about his history, about some of the really great bands that he's been working with over the years, and how this new gig with George came about. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with drummer Cameron Tyler. He's a Las Vegas-based drummer working with Circo du Soleil. But for now, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Uh, Please be well, stay safe, get vaxxed, and hope to see you around. Bye-bye.